that case. Hope not hates are basically controlling Britain. Hope not hate. An alluring name for those more concerned about social justice than truth. These backward, these backward thinking, virtue, sick, virtue signaling, fake news crack. Yeah. Welcome to another episode of the Hope Not Hate podcast. I'm joined by Rosie Carter, our policy officer, who is not usually in the office because you've been travelling around the country basically non-stop for a while, doing the National Conversation on Immigration, which we published earlier this week. Um, we wanted to sit down and chat about that, but also looking ahead to Labour Party Conference and the event you've got there, uh, thinking a little bit about uh, what that National Conversation report means for the debate on uh, racism and, and integration and, and all of the other things that uh, we work on as, a, as an organisation. But I want to start off by asking you about the National Conversation. Uh, what is your favourite travel lodge around the country? <laughs> um, I think probably Shetland. Actually, <laughs> Ballymena was really, really good. How many, how many different places did you go to? So I went to over 60. So I think I make it 63 in total. Um, so I've heard from twenty thousand people this year, and uh, eighteen months actually. That's a that's that's a lot of people. So Shetland Shetland was good. Shetland was good. Shetland was very remote. How did you get there? Um, I flew from Glasgow. Um, it's actually closer to Norway than Scotland. Right, right. For those who are wondering. And um, we'll get into the overall findings, but I just wanted to ask particularly about Shetland, which stood out to me in the in the report when I read it. How different are people in Shetland than the rest of the country? Do they hold, like, generally recognisable views or are they, like, we're in the middle of the North Sea views? I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of kind of overlay with, like, Scandinavian culture in Shetland, which is quite interesting. There's quite an odd dialect. Um, But actually, people have quite similar views in a way. Um, Obviously, the kind of isolation of the place means that people have much less contact with migrants than maybe in kind of big cities. Um, but on the whole, they were very similar. Very similar. So for people that haven't had a chance to see the media coverage or, or, or read the report or stuff we put on the website, just give us a, a kind of a 20-second overview of, of what the National Conversation was and, and what you found. So the National Conversation uh, was the biggest ever public engagement on immigration, modelled on the kind of Canadian model. So what they do is they go out and talk to people about immigration every year before they kind of set their set their immigration policy up Um, and what we wanted to do really was reset some of the Brexit divisions that kind of emerged particularly around immigration Uh, so we wanted to talk to people kind of across the spectrum and see really whether we could find a consensus Um, so that was what it was all about and what we found was actually that people did have quite moderate views and what we see in the media and online is actually not very representative of what most people think about immigration Um, and this kind of political football game that people often play with immigration is actually wildly unpopular uh, by most people I, f- I found that tremendously reassuring I- i'm one of those people that spends a tremendous amount of time on twitter and the idea that people aren't as angry and ranty and rude as they are on twitter.com was kind of made me feel better about life yeah i mean i think it it's definitely told me that people should probably spend a bit less time on twitter um <laughs> i think we we had an online survey as part of it from which we had like ten thousand responses and it was mostly from people at both ends of the the kind of debate so we had people who were really and sometimes quite violently anti-immigration with really horrible views about particularly about muslims and islam in britain but then on the other side we had people talking about how racist everyone was and how horrible it was and how much diversity is a 
thing to celebrate but there was absolutely nobody in the middle whereas in person uh, and in our ICM poll as well actually more I mean only 15% were kind of at those extremes as opposed to the vast majority so you did all these citizen panels you call them um, and like most people were kind of well on the one hand and then on the other hand yeah I mean people actually have quite complicated views on immigration um, I kind of thought that to begin with, but it was more than than I'd kind of imagined. Um, and we also found, like, there were real local differences. So in areas where there were specific local pressure points, that would come out as kind of the big concern about immigration. So in places where there were really unscrupulous employers, people who were exploiting their workers, um, particularly in stuff like logistics and kind of packing centres... Um, people would then talk about the kind of labour market impacts of immigration, but everywhere else that kind of wasn't an issue. Um, so like Chesterfield, where Sports Direct is based, um, which if you don't know is not known uh, for being a great employer, um, that was kind of where people were most concerned about kind of migrants suppressing wages and stuff. And did people um, have lots of kind of, you know, people are lo- viewing it for the local lens, they also view it through their personal experiences of immigrants they knew you know you get the sort of anecdotal well so and so down the street is lovely and you know fed my cat when I was on holiday so I'm all for you know integration is it do people bring up those kind of stories yeah massively but it's it's kind of more complicated than that as well so in places like Preston where there's obviously quite a big Muslim population people actually knew about kind of different sex and they knew about different relationships and they knew kind of the complications Whereas in places where there's not been any history of diversity, then you're more likely to hear those things. That's kind of, oh, he's all right, but it's the rest. Um, and then people kind of start to pick up more narrative through media debate and so on. Um, so, yeah, it's quite complicated. So if people don't have time to read the report, it's quite a big piece it's of huge. work. <laughs> I don't think anyone's going to sit down and read the whole thing at once. <laughs> uh, I've got it printed out on my desk. That's a start. Um, but for those people that aren't going to be able to read the whole thing, what are the kind of two or three things that people really should take away from this whole project? I think a big one is the level of mistrust that people have in politicians. Um, I think only 13% of people told us they think MPs tell the truth about immigration, which is... Um, that basically accounts for family and staff. <laughs> so, yeah, not very many. Um, I think the difference between online and media debate and what people actually think is really important. Um, I mean, actually, the first thing that happened after the report was released was that Sky News asked me to go um, and debate with Westminster um, about immigration, which was completely contrary to the findings. Actually, people just don't want to see that. Um, what they want to see is something honest, something open. Um, and something where they can actually kind of be heard. Um, oh, and one more. It's three, isn't it? Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> always comes always in threes. In threes. <laughs> um, I think also people do really support the rights of migrants. People do actually want a system that's fair. And actually the concerns about immigration emerge most where people see that kind of balance of unfairness tipped. So where people see life not working for them, be it kind of particularly in post-industrial areas where the nature of work has changed. So you've gone from kind of traditional industry work to working in an Amazon warehouse. That kind of sense of loss often translates. So it's this real sense of fairness, both in terms of, for you as a receiving community, watching the kind of pace of change, um, but also for migrants. I mean, we did a lot of case studies of um, undocumented migrants, some people call them illegal immigrants, 
Um, and actually, people really wanted to treat them fairly and make sure that, that their cases were treated with compassion. Um, so, yeah, not all doom and gloom. So you talked about people's economic circumstances locally, you know, factories closing or the changing nature of work, which is a like a really nice way of saying that jobs are just not as interesting or well-paid anymore, I guess, um, being a big, big driver. And I think that's something that's really interested me from the conversations we've had, that this isn't necessarily about migration in the way that some people's analysis of the EU referendum is it wasn't really about Brexit, it was about people wanting change. Did that come across in these conversations and you know, what, what were people saying about that? Absolutely. Um, I mean, I think people are really, really angry. And I think a lot of that stems from this kind of sense of loss. And it is the fact that actually some people's lives are quite shit. Um, people have seen their areas change. And I think this kind of overlay of globalisation and immigration is something that maybe politicians haven't talked about that much because actually people don't make the connection. They don't make the link. Um, they kind of see immigrants coming and taking the things that actually globalisation has taken away from them. So I think there is a bigger conversation to have with people about the way that their lives have changed, and it's it's been seriously unfair for a lot of people. Um, and I think there's kind of sense of loss. I mean, I think we're talking a bit as well, but that feeds into some further research that we're doing, kind of looking at how kind of this change in people's lives and the kind of decline that some people see is really, really driving hostility. But, I mean, it was completely true. I mean, immigration was most salient in areas where, I mean, mainly post-industrial areas, where it was really, really hard for people to find jobs. Places like Carlisle, uh, we had a youth panel, and, I mean, I felt really sad afterwards because people were really, really struggling. Um, They didn't know any migrants, they didn't know refugees, they didn't actually know much about it. People quite often conflated all migrants as Muslims, one girl referred to them all as bombers, but she was quite embarrassed to say it because she didn't really know, and she knew that that was kind of breaking anti-racist norms, but she didn't really know why. Um, so it's quite a complicated picture, but at the end of the day, it was it was actually just anger and kind of frustration and a lot of sadness in some ways that, that kind of comes out of these conversations. Yeah. I think a lot of the national media coverage focuses in on, um, you know, migration policy, and um, the kind of macro picture, but actually when you drill down, people's lives are complicated and therefore the, the answers are complicated. But you know, one of the things that you're going to be talking about at the fringe meeting, we've got a late party conference on Sunday and then in this report that's coming out in a couple of weeks' time, is about some of that economic, um, you know, the, the, the role of economic optimism or economic pessimism and some of the policies that go alongside that. And I think that you know, that doesn't always come across in the media coverage, that people think that immigration and integration policy is all about immigration and integration, but you're, you're, what you're finding is that it's actually a much broader... Definitely, but I think those people also have a tendency to talk about left-behind communities in quite a patronising way. Uh, I mean, I think nothing drives the wedge even harder between the kind of Remain and Leave side, the kind of progressive liberals and people who might not agree with us, um, as kind of acting like we know best and acting like these people didn't know what they voted for. Maybe they didn't, but telling them that is not going to help. Using them is not going to help. Um, I mean, I've heard a lot of kind of anger about people in London, um, people in London who have all the opportunities in the world. And I mean, a lot of us do, 
Um, also, the kind of distance from Westminster is so enormous. I mean, that's really where this kind of mistrust comes from. And I wonder people don't expect MPs to tell the truth. Most people can't name their local MP. Um, and that's a really, really big issue, I think. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, I think it's quite complicated because the economics are clearly a driver about how we talk about that as well. I mean, I think, again, I mean, it comes down to hope, which is kind of our fundamental, but it does come down to what gives people hope. Um, and hope is, in a lot of ways, an economic thing. I mean, I was talking to a guy in South Bristol um, who's a youth worker working with kind of a lot of a lot of kids who are kind of have become quite active um, been recruited by the far right with quite hostile views all kind of talking about Tommy Robinson um, and actually what he was saying to me was that I mean these views don't come from nowhere but also one of the values that people have in his area is having money and I mean when you've got money you can do things you can go places you can get out in some ways um, and I think we all, we always kind of talk about culture and values and identity and we separate that from the economic, whereas actually they're completely intertwined. And where, where did uh, where did the where does the national conversation go from here? What are the, what are the what are the recommendations for government, for local government, for you know devolved authorities? What what do we need to do? Yeah, I mean the national conversation makes over forty recommendations. So if you want to have a look, it's all there. Just give um, us, just give us your favourite <laughs> two. I mean, I think one the one of the really big things that we want the government to do is to have their own national conversation, like the Canadian government do, and actually get talking to people, get politicians in a room, sitting down, having a cup of tea with people, talking about these issues um, instead of kind of capitalising on them. Um, so that's a really big thing. We also kind of have put a lot into these communities as well i mean we want people to actually start to notice the difference between towns stop focusing on core cities i mean obviously they're important they're kind of engines of growth but make sure that those gains are spread a lot wider um so yeah giving people that bit of hope so there's there is hope that's good but (laughs) I, i do know that um a lot of the views that you heard a lot of the conversations you had were really really challenging you're, yeah, I mean, you're literally called the Grim Reaper in the office, or <laughs> the, the, the the sort of slightly pessimistic picture you paint of, uh, of the country. Talk a little bit about that and and where what some of those views are and where they're where they're coming from. Yeah, so I mean, we talk a lot in the national conversation about people being balancers, about people seeing pros and cons, actually not being as hostile as we think they are. Uh, but there's some areas where some of the stuff I heard was quite horrific. Um, I think particularly kind of around anti-Muslim prejudice. Um, I mean, in all our polling, we've seen a big shift from concerns about immigration towards concerns about uh, integration, about Muslims in Britain and about Islam as a whole. Um, And I was quite surprised in some ways at how, I mean, how kind of potent some of these narratives have been and how far they've kind of soaked into the mainstream. So people would quite often talk about Islam taking over, which a few years ago was a kind of fringe narrative. Um, so, yeah, it's it's been quite scary to kind of see that drift in. And people people genuinely do believe, in a in really deeply believe, some of the conspiracy theories about you know, Sharia law being dominant, no-go areas and other things like that. Those are things that people really have heard and accept as being true. Yeah, I mean, not everyone, obviously. And a lot of people do push back on those narratives when people talk about it. 
Um, but the, it's, it's generally kind of... We talked about this kind of halo effect. So in places, say, in the West Midlands, these kind of small towns around Birmingham, people will only ever... I mean, predominantly white towns, again, where people have quite shit lives in a lot of them. Um, not all. Um, but I think people there don't have contact with Muslims. They then go into town to do their Christmas shopping... They then go into kind of the centre of Birmingham and the only interaction they have is with preachers. And for them, that's actually quite a scary thing. And then they start talking about halal products. They don't quite understand what they are and that that's a choice um, rather than kind of something that's imposed. And actually, these things kind of add up and add up. And I mean, it was quite interesting because these narratives are so horrific but a lot of the kind of anti-Muslim prejudice we heard was quite low level and often it was quite implicit in what people were saying. And what was really interesting to me was that people really tried to adopt anti-racist norms when they were expressing these prejudice. So I think it was Kidderminster that a woman was telling us about kind of, you know, they're from somewhere in Asia and, you know, they wear this thing and really trying not to say anything and really trying not to be explicit about any kind of ethnicity or nationality or religion but obviously it's implied in a lot of the stuff that people are saying. Yeah. Um, so for me, that was it kind of going beyond the, the kind of dinner table. And one thing that's sort of to take on to, to conversation on from that, which is slightly separate but related, of this sense that people don't feel like they can express themselves and they don't feel like they can really say what they really mean because they'll get jumped on. Um, and, you know... F- finding that balance between, you know, not wanting people to be offensive and, and say racist things, but also um, that feeling that people don't have the freedom to say whatever they like being quite counterproductive, that, that there's a sort of a... That in itself drives a sense that they're not listened to, people aren't listened to. Um, did that come across in the in the conversations you had? Is that some, something that is driving those kind of feelings? Definitely, and I think the far right at the moment has kind of cornered the market in the fact that they overlay fears about Islam with the kind of free speech and anti-establishment views um, because people have all of those at the same time. And I think there's a real sense, I mean, as power has shifted away from these places with kind of post-industrialisation, that actually people don't kind of have the same social position anymore. So it doesn't mean the same thing that it used to, to be white, to be male, um, even to be kind of working class. Like It doesn't have the same identity um, so I think people struggle with that as well, and there's there's a lot kind of to be done in a, in a way of helping people keep up with social norms. Um, I think a lot of kind of anti-racism in the past that's talked about certain language or whatever has obviously made leaps and bounds, but in other ways it's made people feel like they can't say things um, or that they actually can express the same sentiments but just using different language. Um, and at the same time, I mean, there's a big question, like, why? what is it that people can't say? Right. Um, because I think there is a lot of racism there. Um, but I do think, I mean, I do think one of the ways that we can counter this is having these conversations. And when I first started doing this, I came up against quite a lot of resistance from people who thought that by doing this, we're kind of fan- fanning the flames. You hold a kind of focus group with people who have anxieties about immigration. Like, that's obviously going to come out. Um, but actually, the more we kind of don't talk to people that disagree with us, the more that those kind of anti-establishment, political correctness, the left just shout about their own views and don't care about us and what we think. What I'm kind of most worried about is actually what happens with Brexit. 
because um, what we've seen is this huge swing in optimism and pessimism. So people used to be more pessimistic, particularly Leave voters. They're the same people who hold the most hostile attitudes. They've had this huge surge in optimism. Um, and I think whatever happens with Brexit, all the economic projections are saying that actually things are going to get worse for these people. I mean, they're in the same places that have seen loss over these years. Um, so actually, if they don't get what they think they're going to get, if their lives don't get better... Um, if the economic projections come true and people do keep losing more and more jobs, um, then actually it's going to be quite scary because then the betrayal narratives, the narratives are being let down by politicians even more, not not getting the kind of will of the people will really, really resonate. And there'll be even more anger because people's lives will be even more shit. So a lot, a lot of these conversations sound really tough. <laughs> um, but... Has any has any of it has the process left you feeling optimistic in any way? Massively. I mean, I think it sounds really, really grim when I kind of lay it on thick, but actually, it's kind of unless we know this stuff, we're not going to be able to challenge it. Um, so I kind of come back to the stuff. I mean, it, I sound like I'm contradicting myself by saying that people are actually quite balanced on immigration, and then saying all this kind of horrific stuff. But actually, we still know that those with the hardest views are a very, very, very small minority. Um, we know that most people are actually kind of on that middle ground and can be moved quite easily um, and kind of are, even kind of within the conversations, people would move. People would be, people would say things like, oh, I didn't really realise migration was like all about all that stuff. Like actually, um, yes, yeah, more complicated than I thought. And that kind of thing actually really, really helps in a way that actually just knowing that the conversation changes people's minds. Um, and also, I mean, we do know what we've got to work on. I mean, there's tons of work to be done. Um, and I hope not hate doing a hell of a lot of it. Um, but I mean, all our kind of working communities and schools, all that stuff makes a real, real difference to people's lives. Um, and the way that kind of people interact with one another. Um, so yeah, reasons to be cheerful. <laughs> so if people want to learn more about the national conversation, which we should say we carried out jointly with British Future, the think tank, uh, they can go to nationalconversation.com org.uk .org.uk or.uk oh Both cool work. either way whichever you would prefer um, uh, if you're at Labour Party Conference this weekend come to the uh, fringe meeting we're holding jointly with the Centre for Towns um, we'll be posting content online about that um, uh, fringe and some video clips and whatnot. so look out for that as well and I think just keep following along this is a project that we're going to be continuing to, to talk about as an organisation and you've got a report coming out digging in much deeper to some of the economic aspects of this. Uh, But for now, thank you for joining us very much. Thank you.